Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. I work on the podcast with Will. Hey, at the moment we are doing our compilation series, Willosophies, and we are delving into the archives of the Willosophy podcast over the past few years and putting together some themed, curated episodes for you guys to listen to. Uh, if you like any of these, always feel free to head to tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com, uh, to hear any of the chats in full and access the entire backlog of episodes. Today's theme is human rights. We've had some very, very, very great chats on this podcast uh, with guests who are really passionate about this subject and offer some really, really insightful uh, thoughts and opinions on uh, human rights and refugee rights and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, you'll hear today from Julian Burnside. He's a barrister and human rights activist, Jared McKenna. But first up, going all the way back to 2015, it's Corinne Grant, who's a comedian and also a lawyer. And she speaks a bit here about her thoughts on our treatment of refugees in Australia. Will's doing some live shows in December from December 7th to December 15th at the Comedy Store in Sydney. They're work in progress shows and you can get tickets or find some more information at willanderson.com. Hey, just a disclaimer that this episode does contain some themes that might be sensitive and might be disturbing to some people listening. So make sure if, if you or a friend or anyone you know needs help, reach out to Lifeline 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Hey guys, enjoy this chat with Will Anderson and Corinne Grant. used to yeah and it's why people fear outsiders because outsiders do things differently and yeah. what if you found out if they were worse but what if you found out if they were better that's either more challenging. way it challenges you yeah. you know i mean you you look at it with like things like immigration you know people are scared because these others are going to come in and they're, they're going to want their ways in our country yeah but then at the same time you're like what would australia be like i haven't eaten I haven't eaten an Australian meal this festival. No. You know, like, I mean, I what would this country look like if, you know, the Viet Vietnamese or the Chinese or the Italians or the Greeks had not come to this country? See, that's a really interesting discussion that we should be having too because the argument is always they're going to come into our country and change our way of life. Yeah. But then you say, all right, well, what is your way of life? Identify your way of life. And the best answer that most people come up with is, oh, fair go. Yeah. Like, yeah, but what does that actually mean? If, right. if it was a fair go, wouldn't these people have a chance to come in here and have their way have a, of have life? Have a fair go. Have a fair go. I exactly. mean, I was so where I'm staying here in the city, uh, we're about a block and a half away from uh, Spring Street where yeah. the Parliament, the Victorian Parliament House is. So during this festival, a former Prime Minister of Australia, I'll explain for our overseas listeners, uh, his name was Malcolm Fraser. Mm. And he was an interesting person because he was the leader of the Conservative Party in Australia, which is called the Liberal Party, confusingly, but we can't get bogged down in no. the nonsense. The Labor Party is also called the Labor Party, but rarely represents the workers rather than big business <laughs> these days. But the Greens are probably still green. The Clive Palmer United Party is not particularly united. No. Many of these names are misleading, yes. so let's not get bogged, get bogged down. down. But he was uh, the leader of a conservative party. But during that time, he also uh, had a pretty, particularly Vietnamese uh, refugees. There was yeah. a time where a lot of them uh, came into Australia and resettled here. And he was a person who very interestingly, well, depending on which way you look at this argument, 
some people argue that he didn't change. The Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, got more conservative. Yeah, and that's so be, how he I became see it. left wing. Or some people will argue that as he got older, his views probably softened and he became a little bit more left wing. Mm. Either way, his original party didn't want to have much to do with him and he became no. more of a lefty champion than a. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, a very interesting guy. But there was uh, on. I was walking down the street to my show, and like the day after he died, or two days after he died, there was this massive, like what I thought was a protest rally, but it wasn't. It was a candlelight vigil of all these Vietnamese refugees who yeah. had marched down the street and then were making speeches, yeah. like about this guy. And I'm like, he was prime minister of our country. Mm. Now, whether you voted for him or not, none of us stopped and did fuck all. No, I like know. I didn't have a candlelight vigil for him. I didn't, I mean, I read the papers and I tried to, you know, acknowledge that you know he contributed to our country and all those sort of things. But I did fuck all Th- these people. These yeah. people who came here on fucking boats to yeah. fuck up our country were ne- fucking it up by being respectful of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it and was- that's it. Though he resettled ninety thousand <laughs> Vietnamese in Australia, and I, I don't think it changed our way of life apart from that we now get awesome Vietnamese food. I mean, the Vietnamese community is a wonderful part of this. Yeah, exactly. Community. And has added to our culture. It hasn't changed Absolutely. our way of life. No, we get to have all what we had yeah, plus, plus that. Uh, okay, well, that's interesting to me. It's interesting that, you know, refugees have come up again. That's that idea of looking after someone. Because, again, okay, yeah. uh, uh, why refugees? Of all the people who are vulnerable... And it's a question I get asked sometimes yep. as well when I am supportive of like that or talk about it. You know, even in my show, when I was doing my political show at the festival, I probably had about 10 minutes of that talking about, you mm. know, our approach to refugees. And, and, you know, I could even feel it in the room. There's some people just going, why do you care so much about this? Yeah. And I'm not even sure I know why. Why do you think you care so much? I care about it because – and also I think it's important too to say that just because I care about refugees does not mean that I do not care about anything no, else. No, no, like, it does. There is no – It means you don't care about homeless people in Australia. I don't, this is where, yeah, these are the arguments that yeah. get thrown at you that all of a sudden, you know, you, you can only care for one thing at once, which I think shows a, a great lack of imagination if that is all you're capable of doing. But for me, the asylum seeker refugee – debate and the way that we treat those people is the worst thing that we are doing. They are the most vulnerable people in the world. They have nowhere else to go. Their country has kicked them out or they've left in fear of their lives and they have nothing and they desperately need help. And those are the people that we've chosen to attack. Like They are completely defenceless and helpless and begging for our help and yet we're kicking them. That to me says an awful lot about our country and it, none, none of what it says is good. And but, if, if, but if Corinne, you can't fix that, you can't fix anything else. I read in the paper today that Australia is the most expensive place to live in the world because we're doing so well. So we can't afford to have these people coming here. Yeah. This seen this, small amount of vulnerable people. This gets back to my richest. philosophy of do more for others than you would for yourself. After you've taken care of your basic needs, right? I'm not saying you know, be some kind of martyr who doesn't sleep and gives up all of your clothes and your food and everything. Like, look after yourself first. Right, but, but, it, then- is, but it is one of those things where you're absolutely right. They always attack that one. Like, you know, the, the argument they will go yeah. to is like, oh, well, what, there's homeless people here who could do with that money. Yeah. Yes. Look, what we're saying is the money's all out of whack all over the place, Yeah, guys. that's right. So I'm just going to concentrate on this area right now. Yeah. And, you know. But also, we would have more uh, money to help homeless people in Australia if we weren't spending literally billions of dollars to keep these people on offshore detention facilities. $500,000 a year per person, they yes. say. Yes, it's, it's billions. To keep them there. Yeah, 
like to keep them in this place that the UN has accused us of torturing people, that the Human yeah. Rights Commission have accused us of torturing people, yeah. that Save the Children have accused us of torturing people. But we all know those fucking organisations. I mean, come on, mate. This is Australia. We're not in favour of Uniting Nations giving you Saving Children You know what? That is such or... a bullshit argument too. I'm not going to be dictated to by the United Nations. Yeah. Well, you were the one who signed Sign the up. treaty, dickhead. We're on, like you can't sign we're on panels. Yeah. Like, we are literally on, like, we're running shit at the United Nations. We don't play by these rules. It's like... You started fucking Fight Club. And now you're telling everyone about Fight Club. It's like going down to Maya and putting a TV on lay-by and then Maya sends you a bill saying your next 50 bucks is due and you're just saying, I'm not going to be dictated to by Maya. Maya? Well, you're the one who said, I'm going to sign up for this. So we're on all of these, like, for... 50 or 60 years we've been on all of these treaties and conventions saying we won't be assholes to vulnerable people. Right. And now we're going, yeah, but um, we want to be because it wins us votes. And that's essentially what it is. We're wasting billions of dollars. This is the same country that was at the forefront of the boycotts against South Africa. Yeah. We, uh, people who uh, might not oh, remember this. We still this. lecture Syria and Egypt in their human rights abuses and China while we're doing worse things here. Right. It's insane. Yes. Like, you know, the countries that are being lectured to by the UN for torturing people are those countries. Yeah. They're South Africa in the 80s and, and now us. Yes. To the point where our Prime Minister is sick of being lectured. Yeah. That's how much we're being lectured. Yeah. That he's sick of being lectured. Well, now, most know, of us see an obvious solution yeah. to that. Stop torturing children. Yeah. But he's like, no, just stop lecturing me. Yeah. Let's just keep doing it because I might win some votes out of it. You know what? I genuinely don't think most Australians know what's going on and don't care and I don't think that it sways their vote. Well, I think all. that's I, – I think what they've realised really well, and they're smart about it and I think they're right, is that Australians, like in a general sense, stop the boats – not our problem anymore, right? Yeah. If you stop the boats and we're not hearing about it, because the truth is the boats haven't stopped. Let's, no, they let's haven't. Let's be completely they're honest about that. They're just being turned that. around. The, yeah, they're turning around the boats. This idea that they're so concerned about, like, and this is the new thing, and it's been very clever. They've reframed the argument a little. Uh, no, we're saving lives. It's about deaths at sea. Well, if you're honestly serious about that, you wouldn't be turning around no. rickety boats in the middle of the ocean. Like, Even and but secondly, we just bought ten Vietnamese fishing boats to take people back. We're still having to expand these detention centres. Yeah. So where are those people coming from? Yeah, exactly. I don't think we've stopped the boats. And this is like even if you. But are, we've stopped hearing them. That's what people wanted. Yeah, and and that's that's exactly it because you know these people <laughs> are going to come to our country and steal our houses and eat our babies. Apparently. This is an interesting point. It costs us so much money. $500,000 a year to torture these children. $500,000 a year for these people to be... Per person we're talking about. Per person. Yeah, yeah. So it's billions upon billions of dollars. Like, I mean, I don't know how much it costs to come here and be part of the community and help us build our country. Uh, An awful lot. Julian Burnside, who's a human rights lawyer, has done some maths on that and it costs something like $3,000 a week to house a refugee in the community. I could be making that statistic up, but it's... It is phenomenally less money. And you give them work rights and then they work and then they pay taxes as well. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. You just end up with a few more brown people in your community. Right. And really, you know, we should be able to cope with that. Yeah, that is probably the major issue though at the end yes, of the day. Let's it really be honest. Is. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, moment in our history and I can't help but thinking uh, that we're making decisions at the moment that we are going to have public apologies for in oh, the future. Oh, absolutely. Like, this feels to me, like, you know, when you look at something like the apology to the stolen generation, mm. you look at go and you go, how could we be these people? 
And then you look at what we're doing now and you're like, oh, fuck, we're doing it again. Yeah, we really are doing it again. Well, people here are frothing at the mouth going, we can't afford them. We're battlers. We're struggling. No, just because you want a 64-inch television and you can't afford it does not mean you're struggling. Well, the other thing is also, though, but the, the politicians and the mainstream media have done a very good job of convincing people that the reason they don't have what they want is because the person won below them on the rung rather than the people yeah. 50 above them on the rung. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's interesting to me that a man who gets a $900 million tax rebate from the Australian government for basically some accounting and yeah. spends $30 million a year loss on the Australian newspaper every year to pollute the Australian Murdoch. population with his lies. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always uh, the thing I always like to explain to people about the Australian is loses thirty million dollars a year the Australian right so and has the most like right wing conservative you know clearly you know wanting to be influential views if if someone came now to Australia and said hey uh, I'm new in the country like a Clive Palmer type you know yeah. comes into Australia and is like here's my idea uh, I'm just going to set up a newspaper. Uh, it's going to lose $30 million a year. Uh, I just want to get my opinions that I have directly to the politicians and influence their policies so that I can get large financial dividends like a $900 million uh, rebate for doing nothing other than some paperwork. We would be like, uh, no crazy billionaire from Superman. Like, you can't do that, right? It's a crazy idea that in a democracy we let one voice, one power. Yeah. Like, and have, like can't argue that it's operating as a business. Literally doing it to influence because government. Because no one freaking reads The Australian either. No. Apart from other people in the media who then report on what was said in The Australian. If they stopped reporting on it, no one would know what was written in The Australian. Because a lot of it... It's like... Um, it's like the worst of the Tea Party. Like, you read those columns. They don't even logically make sense. Oh, They start the at one point no, and then it's, it's like a stream of consciousness of just craziness. I honestly believe there's a cut and paste feature yeah. at the Australian where they just like, oh, I'm three paragraphs short. Uh, lefty, lefty, lefty conspiracy, ABC, yeah. climate change, lefty conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's crazy. I shouldn't even probably, you know, talk about it so much. But I think that... What those newspapers and all those things have do a lot is say, please don't look at us up here ripping you offline, yeah. being the reason that not everybody can afford everything. Look at yep. the people who are below you and even more vulnerable and blame them. And that's what, that was the point I was going to make about the asylum th seeker thing when I lost my train of thought was even if you do think that these people deserve to be locked up over, uh, you know, on islands off the coast. Let's just say for a second that they do deserve to be punished, that they deserve to be locked up, all yeah. of those kind of things. I mean, things. why can't they stay in places like Iraq and Syria? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Just say you believe all yeah. of that. At the same time, are you really comfortable with your government lying to you about how much it's spending and lying to you about the success of the campaign? Like, surely, you know, Australians don't like being bullshitted to and you've got a government that is like the worst bullshitters of all time. That should shit you. I mean, when the Human Rights Commission report came out and all they did was attack the person yeah. who put out the report rather than at any time addressing anything it that was so in the fucking... It looks so childish. It looks so childish. They're like, it's biased. You mean this report that is equally mad at both you and the previous government? Yeah. Yeah, it's biased in, in favour of the children, yeah. I guess. Well, they didn't know who it was biased in, in favour of because they didn't read it. Yeah. Ian MacDonald, who was heading the inquiry into Gillian Triggs, hadn't read it and said he wasn't going to because he'd heard it was biased. He got paid $22,000 to front that committee. Right. And he didn't read the freaking report. Yeah, that's money we could have spent I would have got sacked up. if I did that. Imagine, <laughs> you know, you had a job and you came and you said, right. have you, have you uh, analysed that report? Nah, no, heard it was biased. 
Oh, we're not going to pay you for that. Oh, what do you mean you're not going to pay me? What do you mean? No. Um, I'm awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Is that all your right. answer? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. my answer. I'm awesome. <laughs> all right. We can't bang on about this all day. So, uh, but you know, that was nice. It was good to talk about that. I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, okay. So tell me, uh, we, we're jumping around all over the place, but that's fun. I like that. So what I really wanted to start with was you, you talked about being a comedian. You talked about being a writer. You talked about being an actor, but yep. you're also at the end said you're studying law and that yeah. will probably be for people who don't follow things closely the most interesting one because less people probably know that's the case right yeah 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 but it's been going for ages now oh my god it feels like forever yeah <laughs> it's it's only been three years i'm in my third year now and that still that comes out of um my strong belief in belief in social justice and wanting to do more for my community and uh, for the people around me as well. Was, I just got to a point where I was emceeing rallies or um, facilitating panels and all I could really do was comment on things. I couldn't actually stick my fingers into the world and change it myself. Uh-huh. And so that's why I decided to do a law degree so that I could start practically making a difference to things. As so well. that is, so what is your, uh, okay, what, uh, a couple of things. What's your aim with the law degree? What would you like to do when you have it? That's the first yeah. step. Well, ultimately, work in the, that social justice area, which, you know, if it's, you start getting boring and technical about that, but there's a number of different ways you could do that. So, you know, I've always been involved in the union movement, so employment law, for example, on the side of uh, workers and helping them to make sure that they're getting all of their entitlements and that kind of thing. Human rights law, refugee law, which, um, as we all know, you make millions out millions. of. So I'm going to do that because I'm going to be really rich. Right. Yeah, I want a yacht and I want to meet Bono. Yeah. So that's what I want to do. Um, no, the human rights law is the kind of thing that you do on the side because you don't get paid for it mm. nine times out of ten. Um, it's like going back to comedy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Except One that, good corporate gig yeah. and then all my arty shit on the side yeah, that doesn't right. pay for itself. <laughs> Except the chance, you know, you've got the slim chance that you might save someone's life. Um, so that's really cool. And then just other social justice issues in amongst that, you know, women's violence, all of that kind of stuff. Corinne Grant there with Will Anderson back in 2015 for Willosophy. Hey, it's podcast Mike here. We're doing our compilation series, Willosophies, where we're putting together some of the best bits from over the last few years of the podcast. Tofop.com for the full versions of any of the chats you hear today and the entire backlog of the show. Over now to Jared McKenna. Jared is a prominent Christian leader. And about a year ago when this episode was recorded, Jared had just come back from Manus, this is a really, really interesting chat that highlights firsthand the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers in Australia. I'm, d- I'm going to listen and I'm going to ask questions and, and maybe occasionally I may ask some naive questions. Uh, the thing that I am not going to do is present the case for the other side. I know that sometimes people in interviews enjoy the idea that I will prosecute the other arguments. Uh, when it comes to this topic, you can find those other arguments in the daily newspapers <laughs> every day, written by professionals who are being paid a lot of money to make those arguments. Mm. Uh, they are widely available. They will not be presented by me here today. If that pisses you off, that is absolutely fine. Keep it to yourself. So uh, with all that said, Jared, uh, tell, me, tell me what you've been up to. Uh, I just got back from Manus. Which is an island just um, north of Papua New Guinea's mainland. Um, it's very beautiful and there's some really horrific things that our government are doing there. So uh, let's start with that because some people 
Uh, so maybe some of our international listeners mm. aren't familiar with this story at all, although it has been getting some coverage in places like the New York Times yeah. because it is an international shame uh, and disgrace what is happening. So give some the people some background on what is what is happening on Manus Island. Yeah, it's weird, Will. So um, the day that the um, they call it a processing centre, even though no one, none of the refugees that are there have been processed for over 1,500 days. It's like over four and a half years, but it's called a processing centre. And when it was uh, destroyed by the military, was it yesterday, the day before, it was number one on Deutsche Welle's um, homepage. It was number one on the BBC's international news homepage. It was number 17 and dropped to 20 on the ABC's homepage after a story of a guy being attacked by a crocodile and making it away. So in terms of priorities... And by the way, that happens in Australia like every third week. So (laughs) really shouldn't be that big news. That's right. Um So there's this strange thing why we aren't paying attention to it, but it's actually designed that way, like out of sight, out of mind. We we don't want to know what's actually going on. Okay, so that 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 idea of putting our problem somewhere else, because here's the starting point: there are people, there are displaced people all over the world. Yeah, refugees Mm. is a massive issue worldwide, and and the other thing is that Australia disproportionately is actually quite low numbers. Like, I know we always talk about this idea and we hear in the media that somehow we're going to be flooded by these Mm. people. But compared to the rest of the world, the access to Australia uh, is actually pretty minimal and Mm. you have to be pretty desperate to go through the risks that Mm. it takes to get here. If you are caught uh, by the Australian Navy, is that who does it normally? Right? You get sent to one of these processing centres. Yeah. And there you are getting processed. So... Firstly, let's go with the idea of outsourcing the problem. Yeah. What, what do you think the value of that is? Why why is that such a powerful tool when it comes to keeping us from knowing what's going on? Oh yeah, the dogs the dogs are angry about it as well. <laughs> I right. need to point out that Ramona and Winona are worked up. Yeah, there is no balance yeah. in this studio. They they both are very passionate about the issue as well. They know their family histories and that they're from elsewhere and they feel passionate about it. Maybe we should start with what the problem is. The problem, okay, cool. problem is um is that there's war and uh, people persecute other people groups. And while there is still war and while there is still persecuted people groups, there's going to be people who need safety. And after the Holocaust, uh, the Shoah, when six million Jews were experienced genocide in Nazi Germany, the world said, never again. We're not going to allow boats to be turned back like they were from places like the US. And instead, they said, it's we're going to make it a legal framework for people to find safety around the world. And that's all refugee means, Will, is somebody like you and me, only they need safety. So so the, the, the problem, um, if you want to frame it like that, is that these awful things happen to innocent people who need a safe place. And, of course, we need a way to process them. And in the 1970s, Australia was one of the leaders in how we process. So Mal- Malcolm Fraser, under a Liberal government... Uh, we were a regional leader in a compassionate response to refugees. We've done that previously. There's no reason we can't be doing it now. But instead of leading our neighbours, who are much poorer than us in the region, um, in compassion, we're leading them in cruelty and pushing our problems off to 
this um, very small island, which is very poor, who are really struggling to uphold their traditional customs of hospitality for what is actually our responsibility. Uh, but if we actually pull that back and ask questions that maybe this is wrong, the whole thing that's set up, and we'll dispel out like what is being set up and what we saw. So um, for the last... 24 days, all water, electricity, power and uh, uh, medical support was cut off in this centre as a way of driving the men out of this processing centre. So why had the men stayed? Because, yeah. again, like some of these questions are going to seem simplistic, but I think it's no, worth no, it's kind of really talking important. about this, yeah. which is... I think people would have seen vaguely, if you pay any attention to this, that the idea that the actual camp was shut, that people yeah. had been released into the community. Mm. A, is that even a real thing? Or B, what did that mean? C, why did the men stay in that case? Yeah, a lot of people are talking about that the new centres they set up weren't finished, and that's true, they're not finished. Others were talking about that uh, a lot of the men who were in there had experienced violence, um, including by being beaten by the police. Some of the complexity of that story is that the police is actually uh, staffed, if you will, not from local Manusians, but from mainland Papua New Guinea. Uh, I met with leaders who talked about a young man in their community who had been killed by local police and they weren't getting any consequences or any way to pursue justice in terms of that. So those things are true, but the main reason is, and we'll get to this, but... Uh, I ended up spending 25 hours in the centre because we were caught by the Navy, um, the Papua New Guinean um, Navy. And so they're not allowed into the centre at all because on Good Friday they played out this weird passion play where they f the military fired their weapons into the centre after getting drunk at the military base next door. So Australia took the weapons off the military people and said you're not allowed in the actual base. And so we had to seek safety, seek refuge, ironically, in the refugee processing centre, which had been abandoned by everybody apart from these 423 the day that we were with them that were there, that centre, the reason why they didn't want to leave is because it's the first time that they've actually had any agency around their own future. So I, I was there for 25 hours and found it played games in terms of my mental health being there for, for that long. Imagine that over a week. I'm not sure. Imagine that over a month. Imagine that over coming up to five years. That's what these people have been through. Um, over 90% of them have been found to be genuine refugees. That means that, yes, they are fleeing war. Yes, their lives are at risk if they go home to their own country. I met a man who had been offered $25,000, his Rohingya, to go back to Myanmar, as in Burma, as in where there's a genocide happening at the moment. And... This is the kind of craziness that the Australian government are offering people money to go back to a situation where they'll be killed because people don't want people seeking safety, refugees, in Australia. The financial aspect of this is probably something I don't want to get bogged down in but mm. is worth mentioning is just one of the greatest outrages of it all. Because, mm. you know, the way that it gets spun by, you know, those who oppose these points of view is like the the idea that it's some sort of drain on our economy mm. when what we're actually doing at the moment, this this hideous thing we're doing at the moment is a drain on our economy. A hideous, like, yeah. a, a, like a stupid financial black hole of money that we're, like we are spending so much of, like our money, our money we work it's with. It's about $4 billion a year. Right. 
to do really inhumane things to people. Okay, so uh, you sleep a little, and then what happens the next day? We wake up, and it's maybe 35 degrees, and it feels like 100% humidity. Um, and this is what they're living in all the time. Uh, my ankle is red and swollen and gross, and um, I couldn't believe it got infected in such a, a short amount of time. Um, the guys find out we're awake, and they bring us breakfast, which we're like, don't, don't feed us. Yeah, that's how I felt as well. Yeah. Uh, um, this is your supplies. You need this. We'll be fine. 24 hours, we can fast. Like, and they're like, um, you're our friends. You came here with us. You are the first Australian detainees. Um, you are a part of us. You will eat the food with us. So they made sure that no one in the camp went without any of the food. We have uh, solved the dog problem, uh, at least temporarily, by uh, placing Ramona on Jared's uh, lap and now she's getting her back scratched. So I think she just really <laughs> wanted some attention. Uh, Winnie was laying on her uh, pillow that she likes to lay on and she does not share well, Ramona. Uh, Winnie will share with anyone and Ramona uh, is a little <laughs> bit more uh, of a princess. So the attention she's now getting will be, uh, I think, beneficial to the podcast. Uh, I will check that we're re-recording. Yes, we are. We're back. Okay, so where were we up to? So it's the next day. Uh, you're in this uh, you know, place where you don't... You're waiting until that night, right? You, yeah. you, you know that you can't get out, get off until that night. So yeah. what happens during the day? Um, both uh, a, a number of the guys thought that people would be so excited that we were there with them that they decide that it's probably best to keep it quiet. One of the things that happened during the day is um, uh, one of the guys was tweeting that I was in there. Right. Um, hashtag Manus. Yeah. And thank you, Pastor Jared, for being with us. Thank you, Australia, for sending him. Yeah. Hashtag Manus. And we're like, ah. Uh, yeah, XA yeah. on that hashtag, hey. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Because it would create danger for the guys that were in there absolutely it would yeah and they're, they're expecting that um the australian government would force them out which we saw happen brutally yesterday i'm still receiving pictures of guys who have been beaten and you think about me slashing my ankle open these guys have got lacerations and bruises and all the rest and they're in that tropical setting at the moment like it's just so full-on so we we lay low well we didn't do um, much at all. Some of the guys um, came in just wanting to talk with us. Um, some of them wanted to talk about Martin Luther King. Some of them, uh, the, they had a copy in the room where we were staying of Nelson Mandela's The Long Road to Freedom and um, how well read they are. And it, like, so we'd meet an engineer or an up and coming soccer star who had to flee Iran or, um, a, you know, somebody who studied to be a teacher or, somebody who did um, business and law. Like, it's this huge resource of people with stuff to give and they're spending their, their days trying to ration food because we've cut off all food and they've got... Their futures are frozen. There's no... And so our days were these incredible meeting with phenomenal people who I have no idea when they'll see any sense of a sane life or freedom. Okay, so... Uh, night time comes uh, yeah. and you have to repeat the process from the previous evening. So we get a, a message from the people who were going to extract us, um, this kind of like Manus Black Ops, um, Manus Impossible kind of uh, team. And 
they're like, we can't get a boat to shore. We're going to need you to swim, but we have an idea. And um, they had three deep sea divers who were going to um, swim over a cay from out in the ocean over the reef, bringing a barrel that has a seal on it to put Olivia's $12,000 worth of like camera equipment, which is her livelihood, in, yeah, no, in, in this barrel. And then um, we would need to swim with them. And they're like, it, it's okay. Um, uh, we have... Actually, maybe I shouldn't say what they were going to use, right. but a, a way to um, do a flash signal and, and all all the rest. And uh, that was the plan. And so we're freaking out a little bit. Like I surf, so I'm like, okay, like it's it's pretty calm. This will be, but we're exhausted. Um, and we're so appreciative for the magic noodles and tuna that they shared with us that were smuggled in. Um but we haven't. I, I probably got the most sleep. I probably got four and a half hours sleep. Liv's had half an hour sleep, and we're supposed to swim over a cay into the ocean, over the reef, and then wait, treading water, to be picked up by a boat that was going to take us to safety. So we were kind of freaking out a, a little, but we're like, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to do it. The guys arrive in the camp who are going to take us out. Um, they bring it, and Olivia's camera bag doesn't fit in it. So she's freaking out. And um, so unpacking the camera, wrapping it in plastic bags, putting it in there. The inside of the container is actually wet. She's freaking out um, that it's going to leak. Um, we get the stuff in. We put our clothes in, which um, we're just soaked with sweat and there's mud and everything from where we fell. And we hand uh, back, once we get down to the beach, the clothes that they had lent us. So... Uh, I mean, the gospel reading for this week is Jesus saying, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. So I was hungry. Yes, we were. And they fed us, even though we haven't fed them as the Australian people. Uh, I was naked. Well, we weren't naked, but like we were needing clothes and they clothed us. Um, uh, we were a stranger and they welcomed us. They pretty much just went through the gospel passage and went tick, 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 tick. Let us be Jesus to you. While Australia has shown them none of that kindness whatsoever. We get down to the water with this tub. The rest of our stuff is in a uh, bag and we, we get in the water after stripping down to bra and undies. Just to clarify, I'm not wearing the bra and undies. Olivia's wearing bra and undies. I'm just wearing undies. And we Funny bit in the movie, though, if but, you're both right. wearing bra and undies. <laughs> just a little bit of comic levity in the middle of this like high-pressure <laughs> drama situation. It's purely a comfort thing. Um, and then we start swimming and i'm having i'm having a great time well like it's beautiful it's the tropics it's warm there's these like lights in the water every time you take a stroke there's all these lights that come up there's the stars um olivia is not having a fun time at all uh she she put her foot down on the reef and she's got like uh some spikes in her foot um, I, I don't think it was coral. I think it was like a... So she's like, is this a starfish or something? Am I going to stop breathing while I'm swimming out here? She's to So um, we both call it calling on the name of Jesus in different ways, um, but both just like freaking out. Like, um, uh, keep- I think that's what... Uh- I said to you when uh, we were communicating on WhatsApp, I said, Jesus, in, in, the, in the way I mean it and in the, in the way, way you mean it. it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we get out past the reef and they pull out their thing, which they're going to uh, signal with to the boat. And, uh, you know, even if English is your first language, there's, 
it's confusing, waterproof and water re- resistant. So it's not working. And it's not working so they can get the right number of flashes. Right. So we're swum for 20 minutes. We're sitting out there in the water after being exhausted and all the rest. And we can't get... And one of the guys says, I have a backup plan. And he pulls out his lighter, his cigarette lighter. And we're like a K, a K and a half off the coast, sitting in the dark. In the, and he's trying to light his lighter that's been in his pocket while we've been swimming. Okay, we don't need the bra and panties scene anymore because I think the guy trying to start his lighter in the middle of the ocean will be the comic levity that we need for this part of it. But but here's the like, does it light? both ways of calling on like out Jesus? Yeah, it works. Like like it actually works. It's he, a miracle. He's a, <laughs> it's a miracle. Joke. People interpret it how they want to interpret it. Yeah. Sometimes miracles actually get through. It's a miracle. <laughs> um, like it it actually works and. Out of the black of the night, this boat just starts drifting towards us quickly and we have to get out of the way. And then like, they, they pull us up, they pull the camera equipment up, they start up the engine and we just belt it out to sea. Oh, I mean, it was like the most surreal... How are you feeling? Like in moments like that when you are you know, a person who believes what you believe, is there a piece that comes from that or are you just as like insanely, you know, humanly fucked up and high pressure as everybody else would be in that situation? Maybe more so. Right. Like <laughs> maybe that's why I need Jesus so much. Is like I'm like, what? Um but I, I was also delirious. Like, so at some stage swimming out, because it actually took us twenty minutes. So there was a right. lot of things that happened during those twenty minutes. Um uh, and at some stage I'm like We'll do a montage for the movie. We're not going to show the whole 20 minutes of you swimming out there. Um, I'm actually saying things like, this is actually really beautiful. Like, this is incredibly beautiful. And Olivia's like, shut the... (laughs) These will be good scenes. Yeah. These will all be good scenes. uh, In fact, maybe we will show all 20 minutes. That'll be its own thing. (laughs) Uh, Olivia was like, shut up, Jared. That's the edited version. And understandably so. So I shut up but once we were on the boat i was just laughing like i, I think yeah. i was just delirious delirious um, hysterical it, relief laughing yeah like laughing then crying um and uh then we opened up as the boats going actually i think it's because we had to stop several times just to listen out for other boats to see if we were being followed and one of the times when we stopped we opened up the uh bucket with all olivia's twelve thousand dollars worth of what she puts food on the table with and everything's dry her camera stuff's dry everything's fine miracle Um, number two (laughs) miracle number two which also meant we were going to get the footage out because that was the other thing we're like well that's i mean we've taken you've gone there to tell this story and if you couldn't take the story out then a lot of it feels not as worth it well even though we got the um footage back and and everything and you know as we're talking about, I did this interview with Al Jazeera World News and New York Times did an interview, um, but local stuff didn't want, they weren't interested. So uh, we spoke about this like really mostly off air, but mm. 
let's talk about that because I actually think that's interesting in itself. Mm. Just as a side note, let's not linger on yeah, it. But yeah, like, but- And I was just going to say about that, Will, that like the sense of failure is already there because there's so much responsibility. Like these guys' stories are so precious and I feel so powerless. I live daily with people who were on Manus. Like this isn't abstract for me. At First Home Project, I live daily with refugees and the sense of like I want to do my best to see that they have freedom and you know have I failed like it have like did we go on the wrong day did we should the press release be written like so that was all the stuff that like was going on for for me yesterday isn't it horrible that so much of it then still comes down to that because this Mm. regardless of how you feel about this issue this is actually just a really genuine boys own adventure fantastic story like i mean i i know that it is so much more than that and mm. i i don't want to belittle it in any way by mm. saying that but i just mean from the idea of being able to sell something to the media yeah. to get people interested in it like there's and a story where you actually see what these men are like right. their incredible kindness and courage despite the whole thing to actually see them and to have australians there like you know, incarnational ministry, undercover journalism, like embedded journalism with the whole experience. And then to hit it on a news day where people are like, the ashes are on. I mean, the ashes are Yeah, it's important. Yeah, on. yeah, that's, it is important. But Like I did actually remember when I scheduled this for five o'clock that there was still an hour to go in that last session of the ashes. Ooh, and thought, Will, suffering for Jesus. Yeah, Thanks, know, brother. Don't spread it around. Don't, don't let it start, him start getting a big head thinking he's got me. You know, he hasn't got me. I just like the parties he throws. So <laughs> um, what is the major thing that you would like to say about, you know, what you learn? What, what would you love people to be, you know, taking out of, you know, this experience? Yeah. Like what, you know, I, I don't want to say what did you learn because... I, I I think that's too trite. Yeah. I, I want to know just genuinely what you would like people to know about, you know, this. I want people to know about Adam, who was a guy who took my hand, who is from Darfur, where there was the genocide, who left the horror of that. He's the same age as my son. Um, and my son, during the time he's been in detention, has finished high school. He's in his third year of uni. He's met someone special, he's had a job and saved up to go overseas uh, with his mates going to Japan in next month. And meanwhile, this young guy, he, he's grown up daily wondering when he'll see any sense of a life that isn't a prison. And uh, his kindness to me, his courage in that situation, the fact that his mental health has survived... I want them to know about him. I want them to know about Ali, who was who rescued Olivia when the Navy were coming, who has a scar on the back of his head where the Taliban beat him with the back of an M16 rifle, where because of his family's resistance to the Taliban's agenda, he had to find safety. And I want people to long for an Australia where we're worthy of these kind of people. Jared McKenna speaking to Will Anderson after returning from Manus. Podcast Mike here. Up next, it's Julian Burnside, who was part of our 2018 series earlier this year. Julian is a barrister and a human rights advocate. He has spent a lot of his life uh, doing pro bono work in support of human rights. And I think this portion of his chat really highlights his uh, undying commitment to this cause. 
Enjoy. Sit down and have a conversation with him about the world. Uh, my guest, this is how the podcast starts. Who are you? Julian Burnside. And uh, Julian, uh, you, what, what, what would you say is the major thing that you do right now? Tell people what you're up to at the moment. Well, I'm a barrister and so doing commercial litigation is what pays the rent and doing human rights work unpaid is what makes practicing law seem useful. Now, Julian, clearly, I, I I've read online that you get five thousand dollars per visit to every. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you know. are in this massive refugee racket. I've, right. I've seen the blogs, you, the, the, the blogs and the tweets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> I've seen the tweets oh, from cars. It is fantastic what gets around with no factual foundation at all. Is, um, there is absolutely, like, I mean, you can, I mean, you've said it a million times and you certainly don't need to say it on this podcast because this is not one of those sort of podcasts, you know, but there is no money in helping refugees, is there? No. Well, and as a matter of principle, I don't charge, I don't accept any payment for any refugee work. I mean, I get invited to speak at all sorts of places about refugee issues and I'm sometimes offered a payment. I always refuse it or say, look, you're rich, send a donation to the ASRC or something like that because I figure it makes me too vulnerable to an attack on the footing that I don't actually mean what I'm saying if I get paid for it. Um, it, it I didn't realise it wouldn't stop the attacks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julian, if you really cared, you know what you would do? You would actually have a refugee come and live in your house. How but, about that? Well, we have done. Yeah, I know. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You see, uh, Kate, my, Kate, my wife, is an artist. And when the Tampa thing happened, Kate was really offended by it. And she said, uh, look, this is not what Australia is like. Most Australian houses have a spare room. Um, we should set up spare rooms for refugees. That was her thinking. Artists think like that. And, um, and I said, well, look, if we're going to urge people to give refugees free accommodation at home, we have to, have to lead by example. So since late 2001, we've had refugees living at home with us, free of charge. Um, and it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I want to talk more about that, and I'm sure we will. But uh, I want to start with some other things first, if you don't mind. So uh, what I ask people uh, all the time on this podcast, it's mm. the loose conceit of the podcast for a, for a conversation, which is, do you have a particular philosophy towards something? It can actually be an actual philosophy or it can be more a, you know, a motto or a way of, you know, going about things. But is there, is there one that you, a principle of some kind that you have? Um, I, I do have a philosophy. I don't think it fits into any particular school. One thing I'm not is I'm not a utilitarian. That's mm. the one school of philosophy that I don't accept. Um, I guess if I had to identify a philosophical precept, it is the golden rule, which is common to every philosophy except for utilitarianism which is you do to other people as you'd have them do to you and it's really interesting when you research it you see that there's <clears throat> hardly a philosophy or a religion that does not have that expressed in some form or another um, and it's a pretty good idea yeah because it is a pretty good idea uh, letting the press the power of you know people seeing these images and not seeing these images the difference in that I mean obviously you know, I, I would suspect the cynic in me would always say that if the government have nothing to hide in these things, then, you know, 
Why hide it? Why hide it? Yes. That's always, you know, if they're hiding it and they're fighting so hard to hide it, yep. then what are they hiding? Now, uh, is part of what they've done so effectively kept the world's media from seeing pictures? Uh, sorry, it's kept the media from being in there so that Australians can actually see it for themselves? Um, I think that's been an important part of it because I think if most Australians saw what's going on, they would not approve. Um, but then, who knows, you may get some brazen politician. I mean, remember when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister? There's a thought to comfort you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's hard to even comprehend that yeah. was true. Uh, <laughs> he, he received a report from the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture who reported that in relation to five cases that had been referred to him from Manus Island... Um, Australia was in breach of its obligations under the Convention Against Torture because the conditions in which they're being held yeah. constitute a breach of the Convention Against Torture. Tony Abbott's public response was, Australians are sick and tired of being lectured to by the UN. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's breathtaking. Yeah. That is so brazen. It is just amazing. I mean, I was also sick and tired of being lectured to by the UN and <laughs> I was hoping our solution of that would be to stop doing things stop. that we'd <laughs> be lectured about. Yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. I was like, yeah. we can clear this up. Yes. Let's stop torturing people. Yeah, <laughs> good idea. They, they, might, they might give us a pat on the back. Yeah. There's an interesting thing. While uh, we're lobbying to be on all their yeah. councils at the same time. I don't know if you remember, but in, was it February 2014, a bloke called Reza Barati was killed yeah, on Manus. And Scott Morrison, who I think is probably the second worst politician we've ever had, um, w w went public. He was the immigration minister at the time and he said that Reza Barati had escaped from the detention centre and had been killed by locals, yeah. which is, actually gives you a very interesting insight to what he understood about the attitude of the locals to refugees. Um a week or two later, I received some signed, handwritten eyewitness statements, including one from a bloke called Benham Sattar. Benham Sattar was the roommate of Reza Barati, and he said, no, no, what happened? Reza Barati was inside the camp. He was running across the compound trying to get to our room, and he was approached by a guy, one of the people on the Australian payroll, holding a long stick with nails sticking out of the end, at the far end of the stick. And he swung it at Resbarati several times, hitting him on the head with it, lacerating his scalp terribly until he fell to the ground, bleeding profusely. He was then surrounded by 13, 12 or 13 guards, people on the Australian payroll, who took it in turns to kick him in the head and in the torso and until another guy came along, another person on the Australian payroll, with a big rock, brought it crashing down on Resbarati's head and Satar's statement says, and that killed him. And I know it killed him because the next time one of the guards kicked him, he didn't flinch. Now, Benham Satar, for his trouble, was dragged into, a, into the um, security cabin and tied to a chair and beaten up. And he was told that if he didn't withdraw his eyewitness statement, he would be taken outside the camp where he'd be publicly raped by locals. Now, that's, that's what Australia is doing to people. And, of course, the, the, it was another two years before there was a trial. It was a plain case of murder. Benham Satar's statement had identified by name the people who were centrally involved. And, um, strangely enough, the two people who were charged uh, have managed to escape. And they've left... The, uh, the, the Australians who were part of the guard that, uh, group that attacked 
Razor Barati, they were allowed to get back to Australia, so they're beyond the reach of the PNG authorities. And the PNG locals who actually killed him and were charged and convicted of murder two years later somehow escaped. Benham Sattar is still in Manus. How do you how do you keep fighting? How do you not want to sometimes just like I mean I understand. I understand of course like once once you've seen you can't unsee. Hmm. But you've seen so much now and there must be a point hmm. where you just must think not that you want to give up the fight but that you just long for the fight to be over. Oh I do. I long for the fight to be over. Um but I guess I'm just persistent right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if peter dutton ever happened to listen to this i'm not fucking giving up <laughs> and i think peter dutton's gonna listen but you no. know probably somebody from the herald sun will listen and they'll yeah. take choice quotes out of it and, yeah, yeah you know yeah, like yeah. oh andrew bolt will write another blog yeah exactly you'll get a yeah. bolt blog out of yeah. it uh how have you dealt with that aspect of what it is that you do the 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 you have become for a, you know people like an Andrew Bolt, you know, who likes to write the same blog post every four days, and you know, so it'll be like you know Julian Burnside and refugees, and then the next day it'll be the ABC, and then it'll be the Green something, and then you know, like <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, yeah. like it's all cut and paste uh, down at Bolt Corp. But you become you when you become this, you know, prominent advocate, and people want to pursue an agenda that you know they don't want to hear the things that you're saying it doesn't fit the narrative they're mm. trying to put out publicly, then what comes with that is a lot of playing the man. Mm. Like what comes with that is a lot of people not wanting to answer your arguments or not wanting to, you know, have a debate about what it is that you're saying, the facts of the case. You know, they'd rather... The, tac the best tactic is to devalue the idea that your opinion is legitimate in the first place. Mm. I imagine that must be difficult. Uh, it is. It is. But um, I don't plan to give up. And I can't remember who said it, but someone, someone like Nelson Mandela or someone like that said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, then you win. <laughs> so I didn't know the attack phase would last so long. Right. <laughs> uh, tell me, give me some hope. Give me something that uh, that maybe people who are listening to this, let, let's assume that Peter Dutton hasn't whacked it on his iPod and let's assume that Scott Morrison isn't going through a contemplative period of his life where he regrets the mm. decisions he made and realised that once in his political career he had all this power and he could have actually used it for something good instead of he made Australia, the country that he purported to love, a nastier and meaner place and then Dutton tagged in like the real villain that Scott Morrison prepared the way for because that's what Morrison's got to remember. Yeah. Reckon he probably is a slightly more decent human being than Peter Dutton, but he made the space. The decent human being uh, made except the space. This, except to... this, except this. Um, I've read Morrison's maiden speech in Parliament and he makes a great deal of the uh, fact that he's a very religious person. He actually quoted portions from the Bible about his philosophy. And yet he behaved, as a parliamentarian, he behaved in ways that were irreconcilable with those views. Now, that strikes me as being evidence of a very deeply flawed person. Now, I mean, Dutton's flaws are obvious. Morrison's flaws uh, come not just in his behaviour, but the disconformity between his behaviour and his apparently sincere beliefs. 
I it is the the ultimate thing about this issue that I think is that what was the reason that you wanted to get into power? Was it power for power's sake? If so, I understand perhaps some of this. This is about hanging on to power and, mm. you know, you don't care who gets hurt along the way as long as you can hang on to your power. If that's the explanation, then I guess it makes some sense. But in any other way, if you if we are to believe the thing that we are told about politicians, that most of them get into it for good enough reasons, they believe in some cause or something or whatever, I don't think anyone's cause was, I want to persecute children that i want to torture innocent people who were just fleeing a horrible life to get to somewhere better you can't start out with that i i I hope you can't anyway let's not talk about them let's talk about what people who actually care about this can do what would be a more practical solution what would be in your like you know opinion and Mm. just your opinion uh, but in your opinion what would be if you could tomorrow change what we're doing and they, they, they decide to come to you and they go, you know what? Let's assume that Dutton and Morrison both listen to this podcast and they're <laughs> both turned around by the compelling arguments that have been put forward. Yeah, okay. And they, they, an say, they come to you and they say, we need an alternate policy. What is it? Yep. Okay. Well, as an alternate policy, first of all, I would shut down offshore processing for good and all. Okay. And I would, you know, if you have to sell it to the public, you sell it on the basis of, well, we've been lying to you. They're not criminals. They're not dangerous. We don't need to protect ourselves from them and it's costing us a fortune. So we're closing it down. Um, Second, I would say that our annual refugee intake should be increased quite significantly. Um, At the moment, it's pretty modest and we could take more because we're a big country. Um, Third, I would say that if people come here seeking protection who haven't had prior permission then I would say first rule is you treat them decently. Um, and uh, by that I mean you don't lock them up, you don't treat them badly. There may be a few instances where because you've got concerns about their security position, maybe they need to be held in detention for a bit while you check it out, but you don't mistreat them because we are supposed to be a decent country. That's the principle. And would that be a problem demographically? Well, the numbers have never been all that great. The numbers coming by boat have never been that great. Um, we probably had more... Well, 1788 was a big, big time for boat arrivals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah. The indigenous it, Australians might have liked yeah. the policy that was more about them deciding who came here and yeah. what circumstances well, back I, then, I, I, I actually saw a great cartoon once, and it's obviously January 1788, and it's a black fella looking down at the first fleet in Sydney Cove and... He's got a can of British paints in one hand and on an adjacent surface he's scrawled, stop the boats. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but um, we, we, uh, uh, we, I mean, it's an old trope, but we've got more, um, we've got more non-Australians in the community who've overstayed their visas, who've come as backpackers from Canada, America, England and so on more of them than we've ever had uh, boat people coming seeking protection. But if people are seeking protection, then I think we owe them an obligation to treat them decently. With my last breath, before the lights go out, I'd prefer to say I'm glad I tried rather than I wish I'd done something. 
Guys, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed any of these chats, head to tofop.com to hear them in full in the entire backlog of episodes. We're putting these compilation episodes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays for the coming weeks. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and tell a friend if you like them and recommend an episode to them if you can. We've also got an Instagram and Twitter page, WilosophyPod. That's P-O-D. You can also go to patreon.com slash tofop to uh, pledge any support and, and donate to the show as well, which helps keep the show running. Other than that, thank you very, very much for listening.